Ephesians uh, 6, verse 17. But I'll begin reading at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to work through this marvelous spiritual armor that you have provided for us, we once again ask that you would show us your wisdom in providing us specifically uh, each piece, and what it's meant to do, how we are meant to put it on and stand firm as a result. Uh, These things are not always uh, uh, clear to us, and yet we know that you've given them to us for our protection and our, uh, our joy. We pray, therefore, that you would enlighten us this morning as your spirit carries out his great function as our teacher. And in so doing, Lord, enlightens our heart and mind to to know you better, to appreciate your gifts, and to follow you more closely as a result of using them properly in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. Most of us are probably aware that uh, John Bunyan... Uh, The author of Pilgrim's Progress wrote another famous allegory entitled The Holy War. But most of us are probably not aware of its full title. The Holy War made by King Shaddai upon Diabolus for the regaining of the metropolis of the world or the losing and taking again of the town of Mansoul. See, it was was typical in 17th century uh, titles to, to... basically tell the potential reader right up front what he was getting into. None of this kind of modern day stuff where they give you a flimsy, you know, come on title that really obscures what's between the covers. Not so in the 17th century. Unabashed truth. Get it in your face. You want it, pick it up and read it. If you don't, be on your way. They were unafraid and, uh, and just downright honest. And uh, I really appreciate that. And Bunyan sought, really, uh, as we can see here, to uh, stir us up to the fact that he really believed that we are the principal players in a real war. And there was nothing of the anti-supernatural theology that we hear today uh, that just uh, says, yeah, well, you know, the, the struggles are really with your... Uh, desires or with other people or your circumstances uh, rather than what the scriptures clearly tell us is that our struggle is not against flesh and blood not against those things and so Bunyan sought really by the use of uh, powerful uh, analogy to instruct believers in the, in the subtleties of this warfare 
And he went to great lengths, and uh, he did a really fine job of, of helping every believer understand that they are themselves warriors in this, in this uh, great contest. And he knew it from his own life, both from his own struggles, from being persecuted. In fact, he wrote much of his, uh, his famous works uh, from a prison cell. And so uh, he was uh, quite um, experienced and uh, I think uh, authoritative in what he, uh, he told us. And one of the things he tries to make a point of in his works is that the Christian really never has the option of setting aside his armor in this life. That it is a lifelong struggle and that we are always to have it on. In this classic passage that we have uh, here before us, in Ephesians uh, 6, 10 to 18, is, is essentially telling us exactly that same thing. That we are engaged in a warfare, that we are given armor, that that armor is to be always on and our weapons ready at hand because the evil one just is unrelenting in his assaults against us. And so it gives us a good opportunity once again to uh, uh, refresh our minds in what he has done. Um, And I think one of the best ways of uh, kind of reviewing is uh, let's just pretend, okay, for just a few minutes... Uh, Imagine that you yourself are about to be dressed for hand-to-hand combat in that day and age. Now remember, hand-to-hand combat, ancient combat, was horrifying. Because you knew that in a very short time you'd be standing against a phalanx of uh, of razor-sharp spears, every one of which was going to be trying to put a hole in your heart or through your gut, and take you down. And if one of those didn't do it, moments after that, you'd be engaged in hand-to-hand combat with your sword, and you'd be toe-to-toe, breath-to-breath, hand-to-hand with your enemy. And just think, all of it would be accompanied by the music of the moans and the groans and the screams of of the wounded and the dying, the grunting, the shouting. The turmoil, a horror of war. And you are about to prepare yourself for that war. And you begin this way. First, you take your thick leather belt to which is attached your sword and its, its scabbard or uh, shield. And you tighten it around your waist. And then you hike up your, your uh, clothes and you tuck them in so that you're uh, free, free from movement. And when you've done that, and that thing is girt on nice and tight, you're at the first stage of readiness for combat. As Paul says, you've girt on the belt of truth. Second, you reach trembling, and you're still trembling because of what's coming. You reach down for that, that breastplate, and a comrade helps you get it over your head and cinches it tight in place so that it doesn't rattle around and distract you, but is in fact bound fast to your torso to protect you. This, as we saw, is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that we are in a very firm place with the Lord because of what Jesus Christ has done. And out of that righteousness, that imputed righteousness, comes the natural outworking of holiness in our own lives. Then you reach down and you start putting on your war boots. 
And you lace them up across your ankle, up across your calf, making sure that they're tight, making sure that the, the spikes and the implements that are stuck to the bottom to give you a, a sound footing are, are good and solid and cleaned and in place. Because you know you're going to need them when you stand in combat. You don't want your feet to slip. And this, Paul tells us, is is the peace we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That that his enmity has been set aside because it has been laid on Christ in in our stead. And that being the case, nothing can move us. We can actually dig in for battle. And after tying up your boots, you pick up your great shield, your body shield. And that's going to be the shield that protects you from the flaming missiles of the evil one. No matter how many of them come. It's the shield of faith. The faith in God and his word. Faith in his covenant love, his commitment to you in every and all things and his willingness to do all that is necessary for your betterment and likeness to Christ. You have truth, righteousness, peace, faith. That's awesome armor when you think about it. It's meant to gird us up in the most wonderful way and yet he's not done. He still has more. There's three more pieces two of which we'll look at today and the last one which girds everything together really which is prayer by God's grace we'll look at that next week but this morning we want to look at the final two major pieces that he talks about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God Paul says in verse 17 he says and take the helmet of salvation Roman military helmets were essentially of two types, either leather or metal. But they both had the same sort of uh, design. They, they came down to the, to the brow of the, of the head, the forehead here. And then they had these uh, pieces that were attached, that hung down and protected the cheeks and the jaw. And then there was a, a shield that came down in the back to protect the back of their neck from, from uh, uh, blows across the back. So the only thing that was really... Uh, out there was the eyes, the nose, and the mouth. Everything else was covered, protected. And it said that the metal ones were so good that there were only two things that could penetrate them. Either the battle hammer or the battle axe. Either of which sound pretty nasty to me. Simple fact of the matter is that no soldier's uniform was complete without having this head protection, this helmet, Now, two dangerous edges of Satan's broadsword, if you will, when he comes at us, are doubt and discouragement. To discourage us, it's it's really easy. All he has to do is point to our failures, our sins, our unresolved problems, our poor health, or whatever else seems to be negative in our lives. Because he wants us to lose confidence in God and in our ability to handle these things. The other edge is doubt. Doubting God's goodness, his commitment, his promise, his person. 
doubting the things that he says about himself and us as being true. Because when you begin to shake that, you shake a believer's confidence that he can actually stand in the light of the attacks that Paul talks about. This is precisely why Paul says we need the helmet of salvation. That is the way we deal with the devil's onslaught of doubt and despair, discouragement. It is because the hope of our salvation is not the enjoyment of it here and now nearly so much as he says you have a future that is so grand and glorious that it enables you to stand firm in the struggles of today because it cannot be lost it has been won by the Savior it is yours it is your possession and therefore we are enabled to to do the very things that he says we can do. And the cumulative effect of that is to give us confidence that when we face our struggles, we can, we can face them standing up, head on, unafraid. It's really interesting. In the uh, uh, 1988, Mike Tyson uh, challenged the Michael Spinks for the heavyweight championship of the world. Tyson was an up-and-coming punk. And, uh, and Spinks had held the title for a while. And uh, yeah, if you've remember seeing the fight, or if, uh, if you're really curious, just go to YouTube and uh, they'll get it for you. Uh, it's not very long. Only lasts 91 seconds. Spikes tore Spinks up. Just whooped him. But you knew from the very very beginning it was going to be that way. You know why? Because when you looked at Tyson's face, he was so confident. He was so at peace. He was so relaxed as he was about to enter into this fight. And when you looked at Spinks's face, what you saw was fear. And rightly so. And rightly so. But this is precisely what Paul says. When, when we have the confidence of our salvation that is so secure that it can never be taken away, that we can be confident and calm and approach the, the, the challenges we have with grace and dignity and with all the violence and strength that it may require. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul also speaks of putting on the hope of salvation as a helmet. Again, he's really talking about the same thing here. He's talking about the fact that the hope of that salvation, not just its existence, but the hope we place in it, grounds us for the battle that we face today. Lord Cromwell, the protector... If you don't know who Lord Cromwell the Protector was, please talk to Terry after the service. She'd be happy to tell you. But it was said that uh, he, his soldiers, his troops, never lost. And it was because they were Calvinists. <laughs> Calvinists. See, they knew that they had an eternal destiny that was secure. And so they fought like banshees. 
They fought like men possessed of the salvation that they knew was theirs. In fact, it's even said they fought with the Bible on one hand and the sword in the other hand. They couldn't beat these guys. There's a sense in which that's what's to be true of us. As men and women of God who are given the confidence and hope of the scriptures. In fact, Paul even talks about how it plays out in his life in 2 Corinthians. You remember that he says, you know, he's, he's been receiving Satan's onslaughts. And he says, I've been hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. But he doesn't stop there. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says, why? He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That salvation, which is rooted in eternity and is ours, secured by person of Christ and his work, grounds us with another strong, impenetrable piece of armor. Paul goes on, he says, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the sword Paul is talking about was a, was a two-edged sword. Sometimes they, they went from six inches to, to 18 inches. And uh, they were the very common uh, sword of the day. Um, all the Roman soldiers carried them. It was the swords that they carried when they came into the garden uh, pursuing Jesus. It was the sword that uh, Peter whipped out of his belt and cut off the ear of Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest. It was, it was the common sword of the day. But the emphasis on this present passage is not on its existence, but on its use. How do we use it? Well, the first thing is like the, like the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, it's always to be at hand. You've always got to have it right there. That's why it's on the belt. But it's also important that we understand exactly what Paul says when he's talking about it. The sword of the spirit is, first of all, a defensive weapon. Right? M- many commentators at this point just talk to its offensive purpose. We'll get to that in a second. But it is still a defensive weapon. Now, I don't care if you've watched, uh, you know, the Three Musketeers or if you've watched, you know, uh, Roman gladiators. You know, you, you see one tends to be the aggressor and he's making a parry. He's making a, a stabbing move. And what does the guy do with his, his weapon? Well, he defends. He blocks, okay? Moves it off to the side, down to one, down here. So it's defensive in that way. And you have to be pretty darn good, okay? Because if you're defending up here and he's parrying down here, well, it's a short fight. So you've got to know, you have to have an instinct of where that thrust is going and you, you divert it. You knock it off to its side. This is what Jesus did in the wilderness, right? He parried, 
each of the, the thrusts of the devil by responding with scripture. But it's also an offensive weapon capable of inflicting blows as well as simply defending against them. Scripture is, according to the writer of Hebrews, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now it's offensive because it's not so much about us, but about preaching the gospel and interrupting the work of Satan as he seeks to drag people into hell. Because it is the scriptures that have the power to move people from the realm of darkness to light, from sin and death to that of righteousness and life. It changes sadness to joy, despair into hope, stagnation into growth, childishness to maturity, failure to success. It convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. It converts. And in converting, it it deals the evil one the most powerful blows that he ever takes because he's lost another soul. So it is offensive as well. Not just for us, but for others. Now it's also important at this point that we understand just exactly what Paul means by the word, word. Because he's talking about the word of God and most of us probably think he's using it in the same term that he does, for instance, in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, word was with God, word was God. Um, and, and in some ways uh, that's, that's true. He's talking about the fact that uh, the word is representative of, uh, of Jesus Christ it's also representative of the uh, uh, full teaching of uh, scriptures, which have been written down to explain to us who he is. And that word, that Greek word, is logos. And it's the most common one used in the New Testament for word. But that is not the one that Paul uses here. Paul uses a different word. And the word is rhema. Rhema isn't uh, like logos. Logos, uh, referring, for instance, to the word of God written, refers to the entire corpus of scripture. Rhema is a saying. In other words, it might be a verse, like John 3.16. John 3.16 is a rhema. Romans 3.23 is a rhema. They are specific portions of the written word of God. And so when he is talking to us about bringing the word of God as the sword that we are to wield against the evil one, what he's saying is that you don't just kind of shove the Bible in the devil's face. You greet the specific challenge, the specific temptation that he brings to you with a specific truth from scripture, with a rhema. Let me give you an illustration of how this worked in the life of Martin Luther. <laughs> he always had such good examples. He, uh, he found himself one day being attacked by, the, by Satan, and Satan unrolled this, this scroll of all the things that uh, Luther had done wrong. And, uh, and he read them off one by one in just a vicious tone. And uh, 
he got done he looked at Luther and Luther says is that all don't you have some more well yes I do actually he pulls out scroll number two and he reads through scroll number two and uh, then he pulls out another scroll and he reads through scroll number three and so Luther's sitting there and the devil's just telling him all these terrible things that he has done and then when he's done Luther looks at him and he says you've forgotten something he says here he says take this pen and write the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin on the bottom of each one so he took the rhema he took 1 John 1 7 and he applied it to all those accusations that the evil one was bringing to him and in doing so conquered them that's why it's so important that we take seriously what the psalmist says in Psalm 119.11 he says I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you and of course we all know what that means there are certain things that we need to do to wield this mighty weapon and the first is you've got to read the book you just got to read this book. Harry Ironside was, a, was an ignorant young man. That is, he never had any formal education. He read through the Bible in its entirety 14 times by the time he was 14. And God took him into, into Chicago, turned that city upside down through his ministry. And it still, to this day, has an effect there. It doesn't matter if you read two pages a day, two chapters a day, if you use a reading plan, but read the Bible. All of it. All of it. The second thing is, when you read it, think about it. Meditate on it. The Puritans, you know, uh, were doctors of the soul, and they, they had this practice that they called discursive meditation. And they basically, they, they went at the scriptures and they wanted to know, what does this apply to me? What does it say to me? What am I to do? How am I to change my thinking? They also wanted to challenge their heart and stir their affections for righteousness and away from sin. They took this word and they dealt with themselves. Honestly, unabashedly, daily. So that it really had a profound effect. And then you need to memorize it. Because unless you're carrying a Bible with you at every single minute. When you're attacked you need to be able to call to mind a rhema. A portion of scripture, a verse or two. That is meat for the moment. Perhaps no single group has done a better job at trying to establish this as a habit than the navigators. As you know, they, uh, they did it with their topical memory system. And uh, you may recall that a few years ago we made available to you topical memory system for free. Now, I don't know many, how many of you broke the cellophane on those boxes, but I challenge you today to go home and do it. Go home, open it up, and begin. By God's grace, establish the habit of memorizing one or two verses a week. At the end of the year, you'll have a hundred new verses that you can draw on. 
And their plan is a wonderful place to start. From there, you can add all you want. You can memorize the entire book of Philippians or Romans, whatever you prefer. But memorize the word. Have it living in your mind and your heart all the time. Immediately accessible for that moment that is required. As a young man in the late uh, uh, 1600s, Edward Teach joined the uh, uh, Merchant Marine and uh, he sailed on a British ship that was headed for the Caribbean. Uh, he spent many years doing that and, uh, and then one day decided that he was going to uh, you know, take one of those ships. And he did with several other uh, uh, men and uh, became known as Blackbeard the Pirate. And he had a short but illustrious career until one day he ran into a contingent of the, uh, the British Royal Navy who promptly killed him and, uh, and all of his men. Well, it's, it's a, an interesting picture because in many respects it reflects the uh, fact that long ago a, a glorious angel in heaven rebelled against his God and he fell and ever since then he's been doing his best to take as many people with him as he could. But at the cross his power was absolutely and utterly destroyed and we, we stand given the armor of God to withstand that devil's attacks until the day of our resurrection. So brethren, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand firm. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our joy is to to contemplate the fact that you have given us all of these incredible means by which we can resist sin and temptation and gloom and desperation and live as men of women of hope, joy, security, strength, wisdom, purpose. Oh Lord, how good your gifts are to us. Help us to take them up, to bear them every single day, Lord, and to learn to use them in a manner that really is, is consistent with the teaching of your, your word here. And to find that our lives are profoundly and wonderfully changed as a result. And to enjoy, Lord, the smile of your face as we bear a greater likeness to our Savior because of it. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. <laughs>